Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, the problem with Jon Stewart has become a problem for Apple, kinda, as the host wanted to tackle sensitive topics like AI and China on his Apple TV Plus show. According to sources at the New York Times, sources, let's see, if I'm putting on my media Kremlinologist hat, I would say the sources sound like they are very much in Stewart's camp. They said that the iPhone and MacBook manufacturer got skittish about the show's potential to generate controversy, so they pulled the plug just weeks before shooting was set to start. And looking at this from Apple's point of view, that decision makes perfect sense. Look, Apple is a $2.7 trillion company, and they make their money not by airing money-losing talk shows on a money-losing platform, but by selling things like phones and tablets and computers. And those things are manufactured largely in China. Losing access to those factories would be disastrous for the company. And China is not exactly shy about punishing companies that displease them. Uh, as both I in my newsletter and the entertainment strategy guy in his newsletter this week noted, one thing that the trade publications and other news outlets haven't really talked about very much is the fact that no one was watching Stewart's show. Like, no, no one was watching it. They threw a ton of money at him, uh, but the numbers simply aren't there. It never shows up on the Nielsen charts. Episodes from the first season were watched as uh, by as few as 40,000 unique households, according to Samba, which is one of the ratings measures. Look, it's one thing to cause headaches for your parent company, right? And if you're, you're, you know, if you're a big hit, it's another thing to cause them headaches and lose them eight figures every year. Still, this whole kerfuffle gets to one of the central tensions of our age as American film companies come to be owned by global entities and as American studios turn to things like the Mattel Cinematic Universe, which makes its money via toys manufactured in, again, among other countries, China, worries about offending the Chinese government or other you know, similar entities are going to take precedence over artistic and journalistic freedom. Alyssa, let's table the China question just for a moment here because I want to I get to a first a first order question, which is this. What was Apple really hoping to accomplish by having Jon Stewart make a show that drives very few subs, but has the constant capability of going viral on social media, thus generating near endless opportunities for outrage? Um, I mean, I think that Apple probably wasn't thinking very carefully. And I've come to think of a lot of these production deals and, you know, products like this one as essentially, you know, tech and media companies, although maybe it's more fair to call Netflix a tech company, sort of shopping for baubles, right? It's like they're members of the nouveau riche going around and being like, I understand that that has prestige. I would like to own it. I, you know. I'll take a like, Warhol. Yeah. It, or like MBS. Wouldn't that look good in my living room? Right. But like without even the question of this would look good in my living room, it's a way of acquiring taste. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I don't think these are careful strategic acquisitions. Even, you know, I I sort of understand the strategy behind giving Ryan Murphy, I think, like almost half a billion dollars or giving Shonda Rhimes $300 million or whatever. But I would almost think of Apple doing a show with Jon Stewart as sort of in the category of Ted Sarandos signing a deal with the Obamas or, you know, sort of even 
probably less fairly, you know, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, it's sort of a thing you do for the social cachet to a certain extent. And because like, hey, maybe it'll pay off. And if not, you know, you sort of get the halo of being the person who did something with Jon Stewart. And I don't know the extent to which any of Apple's content strategy makes sense at all. I enjoy some of what they do. Like I, I like For All Mankind. I like Mythic Quest. Um, I like the first season of Ted Lasso. I haven't even bothered to watch the third. I've liked a bunch of movies that they've put out, but I can't explain any of it as, you know, it's, I guess, sort of a way to get you to use an Apple TV instead of a Roku. But I think in terms of some of the specific acquisitions, something specific like Stewart, it's basically equivalent of buying some fancy art at auction because your consultant who's, you know, getting a cut of it tells you that it's prestigious and that it's a good thing to be seen owning. This is the broad question, right, Peter? It's a question of what Apple wants to be. Does Apple want to be the home of a journalism-adjacent thing like a Jon Stewart talk show? Does it just want to be a home for entertainment? Does it want to be a home for mass entertainment or niche entertainment? Does it want to, you know, spend uh, $200 million on Skydance big budget action movies that they put on their service and then never get really watched by anybody? I just don't, I like, I find Apple's programming to be uh, routinely very high quality and B, also almost never watched by anybody. And I will tell people, I'll be like, have you watched the, you know, this thing? And they're like, no, I don't even know what that is. I find the whole thing baffling. I find the whole thing baffling. But worse than being baffling, it's like an actual danger to the broader Apple product, right? I mean, that's the real story here is that like Apple looks at this and says, well, if this is going to hurt us with China, then there's really no reason for us to do it. And that has bad downstream consequences for artistic freedom in general. Well, it has some consequences, some of which we might think are are bad in some circumstances. But I would also note that Apple financed Killers of the Flower Moon, the movie we're going to review in just a little while here, gave Martin Scorsese $200 million. Now, Martin Scorsese has a proven ability to get $200 million out of Netflix, right? Because that's who made his last movie, The Irishman. I don't know, maybe it was 150 million or something like that. But it was a it was a boatload of cash. Uh, and I'm glad that Apple financed that movie. Um, I, I I don't know that that movie would exist or that it would exist in the form that it uh, exists without Apple giving Scorsese their money. The talk show thing is is a little bit different, I think. And I think it's it's not totally a mistake. But it's a little bit of a mistake to lump in all of their entertainment products for all mankind and Martin Scorsese's movies and and foundation and whatever else they're making with the talk show stuff, because the talk show stuff has just not worked for any streamer at all. And this is this is kind of an interesting artifact of the format as much as it is of the specific company and the you know, the personalities and the topics involved here is that Netflix has tried this and none of those shows have worked out very well. Uh, None of them have been particularly highly watched. They tend to last at most three seasons and then it's like, "Eh, this doesn't this isn't who's really watching this. And that's true whether the show is political or not. Norm MacDonald's show on Netflix uh, was not a giant hit, even though it, it contains some great funny bits because Norm MacDonald is a great funny guy, but he's not super political. And that's not what that show was about. And so I, 
I think that there is at least partially an issue here of this format of talk show, political talk show, maybe even not, it's sort of comic talk show, maybe even not political talk shows, right? Like the whole thing just sort of doesn't seem to have an ability to find a home on streaming. And we can speculate as to why. I think partly it's competition from podcasts and, you know, stuff on Spotify. Nobody tunes into Netflix or Apple or, or the other competitors to hear more people talking about stuff that's happening in the world because there's now 10 billion hours of podcasts being produced every day by Sunny Bunch alone. And then there, then there's all those others, Right. So I think Alyssa is totally right about the explanation for why uh, Apple got into the Jon Stewart game in particular, but which is that Jon Stewart was uh, was a, a very well-known amongst the media class and amongst the media set critic of the press and of American politics and culture from late, the late 1990s through the early, through like 2015 or so on The Daily Show. And he built that show into a cultural powerhouse that was at least, uh, I, I, my understanding is it was profitable, even if it wasn't a giant hit. Um, it was it was certainly a, a big enough hit. So Jon Stewart was somebody who had a track record of, uh, of getting attention and of doing it in a way that made enough money. Also, what is the thing that is most like Apple or Netflix or whatever that isn't a streaming service? It's HBO. And HBO has a bunch of these, at least a couple of these uh, talk show type shows that have been going for forever, um, including John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, but also Bill Maher's show. Uh, and those shows seem to keep going and keep working. And so it is something about the streaming about streaming that where people just don't tune in to watch to watch somebody gab about the news or the world events. And I don't know exactly what it is, except it's that, that it's asynchronous. It's that it's, you know, choose your own adventure and, you know, it's not immediate. But podcasts are asynchronous and there's a bunch of podcasts that are big hits that are genuinely they're not huge hits in the sense of like, I there don't know, are a handful I, this is the sure, other. podcasting a is a is a morass of nonsense. That, you know, the business of podcasting true. is. So the, I mean, this is again, this is one way to think about it is I, I is like those streamers need. It's not clear that those streamers are going to survive uh, with niche hits. And most talk shows, the even successful ones, even those that make money, clearly are niche hits. But I think it's at least as much about, obviously there was China and AI were specific issues for the specific company, for this specific show, uh, and that's a real thing. But I also think that it's something about the format and for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's asynchronous. I think it's actually just because people's brains don't conceptualize of Apple and Netflix and the rest of them as producing like news and talk content. They conceptualize of them as producing video, stuff I want to watch for fun. You know, not to kind of be educated. I want to just uh, kind of build on this a little bit. I think it's the asynchronicity and I think it is the format, but it's also very specifically like talk shows were a thing that you, uh, you know, what are the late night shows? You, you get into bed, you turn on the TV, you watch 40 minutes of Letterman or Leno or whatever, and then you pass out or, you know, whatever, whatever the modern. Yeah, but that's from the that bourbon. Is. What's, yeah, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying eventually something puts you to sleep eventually. And I, that's just not, that is not what viewing habits are like yeah. with 
specifically the streamers like Apple, HBO Max, uh, you know, uh, Netflix, et cetera. Um, but one place where I wonder if there is room for this sort of thing is on the fasts, the free ad-supported streaming uh, networks, which are growing hugely in popularity. People, people, You know what people are tired of? They're tired of being faced with an endless river of choices. They want to turn on a thing that has a bunch of channels, and they're like, I want to watch the Murder, She Wrote channel. And they turn on an episode of Murder, She Wrote that's 20 minutes into it, and they watch the rest of it. And they're like, you know what? That was fun. I'm gonna watch, Now I'm going to watch a murder, Law & Order SVU. And they turn on SVU, and they watch 15 minutes of that, and they're like, ah, yeah, this is good. This is good. Where's my Seinfeld channel? Like, that is the, I feel, I really feel like that's the future of streaming, which is like, it's like a, it's like a weird weirdly more infinite version of cable. Yeah. I mean, as someone who, as I've discussed on the show, got into television essentially by having a cable subscription for the first time, but also no money when I first lived in Washington, D.C., and would just be like, oh, Benson and Stabler are here to keep me company. It's like, I'm totally that person. But I think that what you're saying speaks to part of what is difficult about developing new talk shows, which is that it's very hard to develop new habits, right? And... You know, talk shows develop, you know, you people have these parasocial relationships with the hosts. It's sort of built into their routine. They know it's always going to be there at a specific time. And I think streamers, it's just very hard to break into people's habits, right? And it's like maybe that was something that the entertainment industry knew how to do in a more comprehensive way when a lot of these shows got stood up. But I don't know that the streamers understand how to develop Americans' habits in the same way. And maybe you just can't develop a talk show habit once you're out of the age of mass culture. I don't know. It does seem like it should be possible, given that some uh, podcasts have become large cultural forces with pretty significant listenerships, certainly much larger than Jon Stewart was getting on his low-rated episodes. Yes, maybe not big enough to to be giant hits on an Apple level no, platform, no, no. but well, I I think they would be much bigger the hits than most of the things on Apple if they were getting if they're putting up like Mark Maron numbers or you know Charlie Sykes numbers. But the issue with podcasting, right, is that again it's it's the the medium is the message in weird ways, and like the medium of podcasting is a thing that people do when they're commuting, when they're driving, when they're walking around, when they're working out, like people don't sit down. Like I, I would be very curious to see the behavioral data on this, but I don't think a lot of people just sit down and they're like, all right, I got an hour to kill here in my house. Where's my podcasting? I'm just going to sit here and listen to podcasts. Like that's, that's not a, that's I, a different, I agree with that. And that's a different thing. what I was trying to get at when I said that I think people associate those platforms with video and with uh, a certain kind of entertainment, whereas they associate podcasting time as it's a different thing to them. It's put your earbuds in and have these, these folks talking in my head. But the, the main lesson here is that Apple should give us a show. What are you folks doing while we're talking in your heads? That's what I want to know. What are, what are what are the folks who are listening right now? Somebody right now is like cleaning their pans and like, oh my god, they're they're talking to me. So they're watching Dune in portrait mode on their <laughs> iPhone that was made and in they're China. Listening, they're listening to us while they're watching Dune in portrait mode. That doesn't even make any sense. They're, what are they reading the subtitles? <laughs> we should record a Dune commentary track. That that's so long. It's so long. It's three million hours long. That would take forever. I don't. Oh, I don't have. No, I would happily hang that. out with you guys and talk about Dune for three hours. <laughs> nobody. Nobody got time. All right. 
Um, this has gone slightly off the rails, uh, but that's all right because that's what—that's the medium. The medium is the message. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy that Apple has canceled John Stewart's show, uh, possibly because of low ratings, possibly because of fears of Chinese backlash? What What are we thinking here, uh, Alyssa? I think it's controversial for Apple, but it's probably great for John Stewart, right? Like. <laughs> This is guy has to be sort of the most relevant he's been, the most relevant his Apple deal has made him. Yes. Peter. Mildly controversial, but the most controversial thing that, about the story is one we didn't quite talk about, which is the multiple news articles about this uh, that, that started by saying, you know, Jon Stewart wasn't a big hit in his first season. And then note that later he had a bunch of viral clips, which is the, not the same as being a big hit. It's like he wasn't a big hit, but later he did have like that's not that's actually still not a big hit. He was still not in any way a big hit. Look, this is this is the point I made in my newsletter. It's actually much worse for Apple. It's actually much worse for Apple because like it's one thing if you're not a big hit and nobody's paying attention to you. It's another thing if you're not a big hit and you're not driving any revenue to Apple, but you still have the possibility of destroying the entire brand on Twitter somewhere. Like I I it's a, you know, it's a reason why I'm very careful about what I tweet cuz you know, that's I have a similar relationship to the to the bulwark. Uh but John Stewart uh, like, was making more <laughs> money for Elon Musk than for Apple, I would bet. I that's a completely I get that's a completely made up fact true. at for anyone who like actually has numbers, but like qu quite plausibly true. I would bet that's 100% true. I would, I, I don't, I don't even think that's like a thing we could debate, which is in a, in and of itself probably controversial. I think it's a controversy, frankly, as much distaste as I have for the Chinese government and the Hollywood efforts to placate the Chinese government, a issue we have talked about a lot on this show. I really do think that this was mostly just like the show wasn't being watched. It was a pain in the ass. And somebody finally was like, what are we paying eight figures for for this? Why are we doing this? And I think Apple's going to be making, I think all of the streamers are going to be making more decisions like that over the next few years here. And that will improve all of their various business models. So I don't know. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode where we're going to be doing a Martin Scorsese movie draft. Drafts, movie drafts, we love those. Who will build the best lineup? You'll need to subscribe to find out. Uh, sign up now, we're actually doing a 20% off an annual sub-sale. We almost never do sales. I think we do like one a year. So we're, we're doing it now. Uh, I hope folks sign up and put some more pennies into my tray. All right, uh, that is it for that. Let's go to uh, on to the main event, Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese's idiot crime epic about the murders perpetrated against the Osage people by white criminals hoping to acquire their oil rights via intermarriage and inheritance. Um, just as a heads up, going to be spoilers. We'll be talking about the whole movie, including the last like five or 10 minutes or so, which I have a lot of questions about. Uh, but, you know, if you want to sign off now, uh, you want to go into the movie fresh, you haven't read the book, you're, you're worried about uh, everything being spoiled for you, just uh, log off. I won't hold it against anyone. Um, when I say epic, I do mean epic. At three and a half hours long or so, Scorsese is asking a lot of audiences. And the first question a movie reviewer uh, who is concerned with offering consumer guidance has to answer is, is it worth your time? And I will bravely duck that question because I have no idea how most of you value your time. But I will say uh, that the Killers, Killers of the Flower Moon absolutely earns its running time on an artistic level because Martin Scorsese is trying to do a very specific thing. He wants to insinuate us, the viewer, into the life of Ernest Burkhardt, who's played by Leonardo 
Leonardo DiCaprio. He comes to Osage County, Oklahoma after World War I and falls under the sway of his uncle, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro. Uh, King slowly works Ernest into a vast criminal conspiracy that involves, among other things, marrying members of the Osage, including Ernest's wife, Molly, who is played by Lily Gladstone, getting them to will their husbands their oil rights and then murdering them, either slowly via poison or fast via bullet. Um, This is just one way that Hale is using the bodies of the Osage to make money. Uh, he takes out, for instance, a life insurance policy on another man, aiming to collect, uh, claiming, I, don't know, I think it was $25,000 or something like that, after the melancholic individual, uh, quote, kills himself, end quote. Scare quotes, because, you know, it's murder. It's not suicide. It's, it's murder. Slowly but surely, bit by bit, the town and the individuals in it resign themselves to simply accepting that the Osage are being wiped out. The length of the film is necessary because you need it to seep in through the edges. You need it to crowd out morality and questions therein. You need to watch as people who should know better either turn a blind eye or actively commit the acts in question. Um, you sit and you watch and you ask how they could do what they're doing. How could they accept it? And all I'll say is somebody that as someone who was a fairly loyal Republican until about 2016 or so, this whole thing struck a chord. No reason in particular. I can't, I can't put my finger on it. When I describe Killers of the Flower Moon as an idiot crime epic, one thing I, that I think is worth highlighting at least is how darkly comic it is because these guys are, they really are idiots. Like DiCaprio plays Burkhart as a straight up goober. It's one of the few times DiCaprio has done like the whole goober thing. And some of King's crimes are so ham-fistedly ludicrous and obvious, you wonder how he expected to get away with it. Uh, the supporting cast calls to mind a group of folks you'd see in a Coen Brothers movie. Somehow, this this movie and Oppenheimer are the two pictures of the year that have made me laugh out loud the most in theaters, despite the gravity of their subject matters. Probably says more about me than the movies, but I digress. Uh, I'll temper my praise slightly here by admitting the film left me a little cold. It is narratively muddled, at least in part because in the midst of development, Scorsese decided he didn't want to focus on the birth of the FBI, which is the focus of David Grant's source book, and instead wanted to center the story of the Osage. But the film doesn't center the Osage, not really. It centers the killers of the Osage. Uh, The whole film is a little bit too subdued for my taste, too staid. I much prefer the slightly more hectic and frenetic stylings of Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, films that also insinuate us into the lifestyle of crime, only to pull the rug out and hammer home the iniquity of what these people are doing by showing their charismatic leads downfall. It really feels as though Scorsese has internalized years of fighting. Uh, The depiction does not equal endorsement wars. And, um, you know, having to deal with those idiots for decades who say like, oh, he's glorifying crime and Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. He doesn't want to risk anyone thinking that he approves of what is going on. And in fact... Scorsese literally comes on to the screen at film's end in a coda, and he tells us, the audience, that what happened to the Osage was bad. And what makes it worse is the way that history and its stories are written by the perpetrators of such crimes. I want to talk more about this coda in a minute, which I think is the most interesting thing about the movie. Suffice to say, I think it's key to understanding what he is up to through most of the picture. But I'm also honestly just a little disappointed he felt the need to put so precise a button on the film. Uh, Peter, in your review, you talk about self-conception and how none of us really likes to think of ourselves as bad men. And this gets to one of the most interesting elements of Killers of the Flower Moon, and that's the relationship between Ernest and Molly. Do you think he really loved her? 
is is part one of this question. And if he did really love her, if he was truly in love with this 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 woman he, who he had, had married uh, and took care of and treated through her diabetes, do you think he understood, like willfully and consciously understood that he was poisoning her at King Hale's request? So you asked whether I think he did love her. I think the better question or the one that I can answer is, I think that at times the movie presents a version of a character who thinks he loved her. And does that mean that it is or isn't love? Well, maybe love is an objective thing, but love certainly has a component of if someone thinks they love someone, then in some sense they do. But of course, love also can be judged from the outside objectively. The movie is playing this incredibly tricky game of perspective with viewers that I think that I'm just kind of in awe of the more I think about it, but it's also very in keeping with the way Scorsese has portrayed violence and male violence in particular for decades, but also something that I want to call, with religious overtones, sin. And I think often about the the fact that Martin Scorsese has talked about how, well, if he wasn't going to become a filmmaker, he was going to become a priest. Because if you go back and look through his movies, and especially the last few that he's made, there are movies about sin and depravity in the biblical sense. Maybe not in a in a specifically Christian sense, though somewhat specifically. I don't, but I don't mean these are like Christian movies in the, I don't know, like Frank Peretti horror novel sense, whatever. But there is this sort of sense of biblical fallenness to his movies. And a big part of what he does in his films is he says, look, here are people who who don't see themselves as evil, who don't see themselves as full of sin, who cannot truly reckon with their own natures. And that's something that we've seen certainly going back to Taxi Driver um, and to a lesser extent, I think, Mean Streets, but in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas as well. These These are movies about people who cannot quite quite get there in recognizing the things they do, even when presented extremely clearly with evidence of uh, the ways that their amorality or immorality with with the the damage that they have done, because they just can't see themselves like that. And part of what Scorsese does is he shows us the mystery of human evil. Right. He shows us the fact that, yeah, you can explain it sometimes with really kind of prosaic stuff like greed, like the fact that some people are just psychopaths, like the ways that, you know, sometimes it's just sort of easy to ignore the plight of others because you're helping yourself. But then his movies always do this thing, this incredibly, like I said, just tricky thing with psychology where they show us that there is that there's some aspect of it that we can't understand because the characters themselves don't understand it because they can't quite access that view of themselves. And so he is in this movie, he is showing us both this external view of, of someone who participated in a fairly obvious, totally horrific, just grisly and unpleasant complex murder plot that was driven by sort of two main things. One is uh, a kind of just a, a very ugly racism, and then relatedly, uh, an equally ugly and related just self-interest and greed. And then he shows us this person who was probably, 
was almost certainly manipulated into marrying his way into this scheme, right? You have, there's that moment at, very early on in the film where William Kinghale, the, the De Niro character, Ernest's uncle, basically suggests him into marrying Molly Burkhart. And yet he, he thinks of himself as having married Molly because she was kind of into him, because they had a rapport while he drove her around. He thinks there's something natural and genuine about it. And in Scorsese's vision, that's both not right, and also that's just how people see themselves. And, he, and Scorsese does this thing where he lets the viewers see this person doesn't see himself fully and doesn't see the, the, the truth about his own nature. But he also then tells us that's true of all of us. And this is actually where we get to the ending, right? Is we can't see our own natures and we're not able to see the depravity and the, the sin that lies at, at the heart of our, ourselves and our society. And the very end of the movie throws it back in, at all of us and says, Scorsese says, I'm part of this. This is something that I have done. And implicitly kind of looks at the viewer and says, yeah, you have done this too. And I'm showing you this in a person where you can see it in some ways easily because this guy helped plant a bomb and of course, and was a go-between on a bunch of murders. But I'm telling you, you're part of this in a way that you, that you don't know about because the whole thing that, that I've spent my life doing is telling stories about people who can't see it in themselves. It's incredibly powerful. I don't know that the movie is, this isn't his best movie. I don't know that it's quite a masterpiece. I think it has, I think it has some issues with sort of narrative clarity and pacing here and there. Although, as you said, Sonny, the, the length really does draw you in and give the movie a lot of its power. But it is, at its best, it's gorgeous to behold. It's incredibly well acted. And it's just masterful in the way that it portrays the psychology of both an individual and then the, the social context of that individual that allows somebody to do something that is horrific and evil and without even really knowing that they're doing it. Alyssa, one thing neither Peter nor I really talked about were, was the performances. What did you make of the, the actorly work in this movie, which is it is very much an actor showcase sort of picture? Yeah, um, I I want to talk first about Lily Gladstone because I think, you know, as you suggested, Sonny, and as you sort of ended up embodying Peter, there's an extent to which this movie sort of draws you to its criminal characters. But I think Gladstone as Molly is so wonderful in this movie. And she is the person who I think is probably doing the best calibrated acting in the film. Um you know, to me, one of the most, probably the most enjoyable and memorable scene in the film is, you know, it's sort of a picnic or a community gathering where Molly is sitting with her sisters and they're talking about Ernest and his brother and their uncle. And she's talking about Ernest as like someone who's kind of dumb, but handsome and sort of enjoyable to be around. The dynamic between her and DiCaprio is it's totally compelling, right? You can see, you know, the scene where they're, sort of, you know, making out in the front scene of his Model T. And, you know, I have not found DiCaprio that sort of sexually convincing in his later movies, but the two of them have real sort of chemistry and heat. And you can see Gladstone playing both, you know, Molly's restraint, but her appetite to a certain extent. Ernest is sort of greedy in an ugly and 
irritating way uh, for, you know, for money, for acquisition, for his uncle's approval. But Molly is someone who has, you know, real desires too. And you see that every moment when she's sort of frustrated about having to declare herself incompetent and, you know, ask for money from her guardian. Um, she, you know, she's someone who, you know, has a certain level of like lust and physical desire. She, you know, she enjoys having a nice life. There are things that she wants. And what gives her performance its power and what ends up, you know, sort of really you know, making the movie land at the end is that one of the things that she wants is for her marriage to be real, right? I mean, she has this sort of hunger for it to be real. And it's why, you know, when she asks Ernest what he was giving her along with the insulin, you know, you know that she knows on a certain level. Like, obviously, she got to the hospital and was told that she was being poisoned, but she holds on to this possibility. Well, maybe she wasn't told she was being poisoned, but she was taken off what she was on and realized, oh, now I am better. It's very clear what was making me sick. Yeah. And so it it is interesting that the movie has sort of these versions of desire, you know, that are contrasted with each other. There's that sort of grubby greed for someone else's money And then there's that desire for a life that is full and satisfying and rich and sensual and materially enjoyable. And, you know, the movie never really kind of looks directly at the fact that Molly was married three times, right? I mean, she's married to Henry Roan, which is sort of brought up and then never really dealt with um, in a sort of, you know, maybe not legally binding ceremony. And then she gets married again, right? I mean, she's someone who has all the reason in the world not to trust men ever again. And, you know, she has a life and she sort of disappears into history, as Scorsese suggests at the end. But it seems from the historical record, she doesn't stop wanting things. And I think Gladstone just captures that sense of control and humor and well-managed desire really beautifully. And by contrast, I've talked some on this podcast about how I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio very much as an actor. And this movie, in a weird way, helped me clarify what I sort of do and don't like about him. Because I think for a lot of this movie, you know, he's doing something he doesn't normally do, playing, as Sonny puts it, a total goober. But again, he manages to balance the sort of uglier parts of Ernest's personality with the... Again, and I think the the his sort of chemistry with Gladstone kind of lifts him up in my estimation in this movie. And he meets her restraint um, in a way that he doesn't always do. And, but there is this scene where, you know, he's being interrogated by Tom White. It's clear that, like, the jig is kind of up. And there's a couple of minutes where DiCaprio kind of sits there and does weird things with his mouth. And I couldn't stand it, right? It was like, it was to me the epitome of DiCaprio's tendency to do the most acting rather than, and like, I get it, you know, it's sort of, it is an exaggeration of stuff that his character has done kind of throughout the movie. It's one of the ways that he sort of makes himself feel dumb, but it it was, to me, that scene is so like, okay, I see every ounce of effort that you're putting into this. And not only does the choice itself not work for me, but the obviousness of the effort is distracting and irritating, and I do not like it. And so I I appreciate his performance in this movie in the sense that it helped me articulate a very specific 
set of things DiCaprio does that frequently sort of take me out of his movies or make me find him unconvincing. And I think back to Gangs of New York, in which he is, you know, an early collaboration of his with Scorsese, in which he is, his character, you know, Amsterdam Valent, has these huge feelings and is dramatic, but the emotions feel sort of more earned and less kind of like shoved at you. And I just like him a lot more in that collaboration of theirs. I mean, De Niro's De Niro. He's great. Um, I do I do think it's incredibly funny the extent to which, you know, De Niro like is periodically like, I am going to do extremely good acting work and then like here's the junk for the money. Um, he he perhaps embodies the greatest gulf among the people who do that. Um, well, Martin Scorsese knows how to get good work out of Robert De Niro, I hear. Yes, indeed. Um, but I do think the like the actor in this movie for me is Lily Gladstone. I also think the country singer Jason Isbell is quite good as Ernest's like sort of irritating, suspicious brother-in-law. <laughs> Your comments on, on DiCaprio are interesting to me because what stuck out to me here is how not protective he is of a certain kind of star image. When you think about sure. a movie star like Tom Cruise, maybe most famously, but also even someone like Harrison Ford, a lot of big movie stars from the last 30 years have always made sure that when they are on screen, they are the heroes in a pretty conventional sense, or maybe they're playing a really compelling villain. And either way, they look powerful. They look intimidating, right? They command the screen and they never let another actor overtake them or only just barely for a moment so that they can come back and tip the ledger, tip the scales towards, you know, show that they can do it even more. And what's so interesting about DiCaprio, not just in this movie, but for his most of his career, certainly his his uh, later career, starting, I think, with Gangs of New York, is that he doesn't demand to be the most important thing on screen a lot of the time. I mean, in Gangs of New York, sure, there's a bunch of acting from uh, from him, but Daniel Day-Lewis just chews the scenery around uh, uh, him and chews him up and, let, and spits him out sometimes. And DiCaprio somehow or another, I don't know whether he knows it or not, or whether it's just sort of that Martin Scorsese understands how to make these dynamics happen. DiCaprio has continued to play these roles where he is not the center of power on screen at every, at every moment, where he is not obviously the most intelligent, obviously the most capable, and also the biggest performer. I mean, it's kind of, kind of telling that he got his Oscar for getting mauled by a bear. Right. Like it was it wasn't the moment where he beat the crap out of the bear. It was the moment where the CGI bear beat the crap out of him. And that's kind of there's a there's a bunch of that going on here. He allows himself to look stupid and weak and foolish. Uh, he allows Robert De Niro to sometimes chew scenery around him in ways that make Robert it, that make De Niro the center of the, the scene. And it's just a kind of fascinating turn from probably I don't he's not the last movie star, but he is maybe the last like the youngest movie star who can attach his name to a project that is not obviously commercially viable already, i.e. Uh, an IP, a franchise project, and probably get it made. He's a, And made it at a big budget. Uh, there's yeah. just not many other people who, who can command resources like he can. And he does it not by being 
He's the center of attention, but not by being the center of attention in a very traditional male movie star kind of way. Yeah. The one performance I just I want to defend briefly here because apparently people are kind of flummoxed by it is Brendan Fraser's who shows up as the lawyer for King Hale toward the end of the film. And his first appearance on screen is like he starts this thundering like this man is my client. He's pointing at, uh, you know, uh, great. Ernest Burkhart. And it's wonderful. And it's very much he's doing a very specific thing. He's playing an early 20th century, like midtown lawyer um, yes. of the sort that you 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 would see in in movies or uh you know in here on radio and people would be like this guy is like a local celebrity he's a big personality you see it in uh, the most the most recent place i remember seeing it is in uh, public enemies the the lawyer that johnny depp has in in that movie is, is doing the same sort of thing and the performance here is, is great and perfectly modulated and very clearly exactly what martin scorsese wanted and people on uh, like some 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 folks on the internet, that hive of scum and villainy are like, oh, this is so terrible. He's so hammy. This is just, he's doing the whale thing again. And it's like, you're all, I hate all of you. You're bad at watching movies. He's perfect in this role. Uh, just as every, like every actor is perfectly uh, pitched to their their roles. And uh, he is Scorsese and his casting director talked about when they were developing this movie, how they spent a long time just I, the phrase that uh, I believe I read was hunting for interesting faces. And this movie is utterly filled with interesting faces. Got a few of them. Got a few. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Killers of the Flower Moon? Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Big thumbs up. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Not my favorite Scorsese, but probably a top 10. Thumbs up. Good movie. Okay, that's it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. And tell your friends, a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sonny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Friday.